Well, good morning and welcome everybody to Encounter Church. I just want to give a quick uh, shout out, a reminder to something we're, um, we're mentioning now for a couple of weeks. Uh, these cards are spread throughout the building. It just says that we are a phone-friendly church. So if I see uh, uh, people kind of checking their phones throughout worship, that is okay. It's even encouraged around here, especially if you've got uh, children in our amazing kids ministry. We will alert you if anything is less than ideal and perfect via text message. So you're definitely going to want to check the, your phones two or three times throughout worship in case uh, you have kids out there. Um, if this doesn't work, we're going to have to go back to the pager system where our whole church looks like 1990s drug dealers. We don't want that. Don't make me do that. We'll have to do the songs via overhead projector again and just own that theme. We don't, we don't want to do that forward, not backwards. Uh, okay, we're in a series. We're wrapping up a series this time, uh, this morning called Dangerous Prayers. And, uh, and throughout this series, uh, we said that this could possibly be what I call a keystone series or a keystone message or weekend for some of you. A keystone weekend is one where you look back on and say, it was there, it was then, that God moved in my life. Like God did something, he moved some pieces around, God had things sort of fall into place, God started changing my life and it was like a, a message or a weekend that you look back on it in a series and say, it was there, it was then, that everything, the ground beneath me, started to move in the most beautiful, sometimes terrifying, but awesome way because it's from God. Uh, for example, when we started this series, we kicked it off with Search Me. And the coolest thing starts to happen. I get to hear story after story of people who said, I prayed that dangerous prayer, search me, and God like showed up. And so I got to hear these stories about people saying, listen, we prayed God, search me, and God started showing us what he sees, including all of these, these underlying family tensions that have just simmered and sometimes boiled over, and it's just gone on for years and even decades. And, and now after this series, like, like this stuff is starting to come out, and it's terrifying and it's scary, but it's also beautiful because I know that God is behind it. Last week, I asked you to pray that dangerous prayer, break me. And, and then I got an email later in the week that said, I did, and God broke my heart, not for a particular ministry, but God broke my heart for a particular person. And I met up with that person, and then we hit it off, and then like we chatted through some stuff, and it was like the most amazing thing. And I just, I want to encourage you, if you haven't yet, to pray, God search me, God break me, and today God send me uh, where yeah, I don't know. And that's kind of the point. That's what makes it a dangerous prayer is that you have no idea where he might send you. He might send you halfway around the world or he might send you to a different city or he might send you to a place where you already are already. You just haven't really thought it through that much. He might be, he might be sending you to dig into your church community. I know some people around uh, in the summertime especially, we just kind of like float and we hover uh, around the perimeter. And maybe God is saying like, now is the time to swoop down. Now is the time to dig in. Now is the time to join a small group. Now is the time to serve. Now is the time to, uh, to give. Now is the time to give in. He's sending you somewhere when you pray with a fully surrender, surrendered heart, God, send me. In, another, in other words, it's like saying, God, the answer, my answer is yes, even before I hear what the question is. Send me without hesitation. Send me without reservation. Send me without qualification. But we don't want to do that all the time. I know I don't want to do that all the time. My answer is often just plain no. 
Uh, for example, I remember uh, this a number of years ago uh, when I would walk by panhandlers on the street and I, and I never knew exactly like what to do, right? Because nobody really has a great solution for this sort of thing. And, and you don't really know, you know, I don't, I don't want to give them money because I, you know, don't really know what the money is being used for. Um, or I might have an idea what the money is used for and like that doesn't seem like a very good idea either. And, and not really knowing what to do, but feeling this burden to do something, I started to sense that God was asking me, instead of giving money, to like invite somebody inside to a Burger King or a Subway or something nearby and just having a brief meal with somebody and hearing their story. Now, this isn't like a universal, every Christian, every Jesus follower has to do this. Sort of, this is just a dirt thing for that season in my life. Um, that I was a young guy, didn't really have many places to be all the time, but don't feel bad, it's fine. Uh, and, and, and God was just asking me to like, reach out and, and to get to know some of these guys. Um, so I would. And I kind of like started this habit. And I heard some amazing stories and these relationships that, that built out of it. It was, it was really awesome. And then I remember years later, um, a lot has changed in my life since then. I started working. I, had, I got married and I had, a, I had a kid. In fact, my daughter, uh, who was three years old at the time, was with me. And I started sensing like my time is not my own, which is interesting because my time is never my own. Our time is never our own. But in that moment, in that season of life, I should say, I sense that, uh, that I'm in a hurry for some reason and, and, and people are relying on me and not this person. So I should, you know, walk on. So I see this guy and I start to feel like all of that, that, that God nudgings in me. You know what I'm talking about? I have not heard the audible voice of God in the past, but I have experienced his leading so much and so often that, that I kind of start to develop this sense of like when God is maybe nudging me to do something that I really don't want to do. And so I, I sense that and I'm experiencing God saying like, this is the guy, do the thing. I, you have no idea what I'm going to do. He's sending me into this conversation with this guy. And as I'm getting closer and I start to kind of see that he's going to make eye contact with me and I'm him and I know what God wants me to do. What do I do? I take my daughter, I shift her over to the other side, I don't make eye contact, and I just walk right on by. In a sense, I knew what it was that God was asking me, and I just plain said no. Now, I think about that a lot, because it's one of those stark moments in my life that I don't know what God, what kind of divine appointment God had for me at that moment, but I just simply said no. And, and whatever opportunity Whatever world change may have happened as a result just simply didn't because I said no. And we say no all the time, even in the Bible. People just simply say no. Moses this is a guy that God calls back to Egypt and says, I want you to be the guy to lead my people out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And Moses, he says, okay, sure. Yeah, here I am, but you got to send someone else, not me. Right, Moses turns and goes, my brother Aaron, he's great speaking. You should see him with a microphone. He's amazing. People will listen to him. I'm not your guy, God. He's your guy. Send someone else. It's a clever way of simply saying no. Uh, Jonah in the story in the Bible is a guy that was just, you know, really interesting because his job was already a prophet. And he says no by simply just shutting off his phone and saying no. I'm not, you want me to go to Nineveh? Like my bitter enemies, my arch rival yeah, I'm not, absolutely not. Getting on a boat, where are you going? Not Nineveh? Sounds great. He bolts. He says simply no. Samuel is another one interesting in the Bible because Samuel is a guy, he's a boy, and God is audibly now calling his name. Samuel, Samuel. And, and Samuel thinks to himself, it can't be the voice of God, which is another one that we do a lot. And then he goes over to uh, foster dad Eli and says, hey, uh, were you calling me three times in a row? 
And we do that all the time. When, when God is calling us to do something, we, we sense he's asking us to do something. And what do we do? We don't answer him. We don't ask him for more information. We don't go where he sends. We simply say, it can't be the voice of God. I mean, that, that must have been maybe somebody in the other room. That must have been the voice in the back of my head. That must have been the burrito I had way too late last night. It couldn't be the voice of God. And we don't even have to look in the Bible for all the reasons. We just simply tell God all the time, I'm not going to go where you send me. Um, or we tell him, yes, I'll go, but like there's an asterisk and like some terms and conditions apply. God, see the fine print there at the bottom. Or we tell God, sure, yeah, I will absolutely go wherever it is that you're going to send me. I don't need to know. I just need to know that it's not going to be now. It's going to be six months from now when I'm a little bit more comfortable with it. Or it's going to be six months ago now when it's January and I want you to send me to California or to Florida. <laughs> I want you to send me where I want to be sent. We have all of these clever ways of simply telling God, no, or not now, or not quite yet. But there's one guy, there's one story in the Bible that I think is going to prepare us for giving God this unqualified yes. Here I am, send me. Without hesitation, without reservation, without qualification. Here I am, send me. God, the answer is yes. I don't even have to know what the question is. He wasn't there all the time. But God got him to that place through two experiences. And I just think that they're going to be helpful, not just for the guy in our story for this morning, but I think in your week ahead. Uh, to figure out what those two things are that lead somebody to that place of total surrender, we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6. There's Bibles underneath the, the chairs in front of you. You can follow along. If you don't have a Bible at home, take ours. We love it. Give those away all the time. They're great. Okay, Isaiah 6 verse 1, starting off. In the year that Uzziah died, hang on to that, coming back in a minute. I, this is Isaiah speaking now, I saw the Lord high, exalted, seated on a throne, and the, and the train of his robe filled the temple. This is a guy, a prophet Isaiah, who's having this holy encounter. Uh, he's having this experience of God right there in his midst. In fact, he has this experience of being like, like elevated up into heaven where he gets a one-on-one, -on -one, where he gets a meeting with God himself. Before we get to any of that stuff, we're going to see God has a purpose behind this whole thing. And I think it has something to do with the timing in which all of this happens. In, in, in this case, in the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah is kind, of um, kind of an important time in the nation of Israel, in the history uh, because the kingdom was split into two parts. There was a northern kingdom and there was a southern kingdom at that point. They did not get along, as you imagine, by the split. The northern kingdom was basically in a death spiral the whole time. They never listened to wisdom. They never listened to God. They made terrible decisions. And they were about 20 years out from being completely taken over and destroyed by the Assyrians by the time this story happens. So they're like crumbling already. The southern kingdom is another story. They've had like good king, bad king, bad, bad king, good king. Bad, and they're just kind of like on this. And so they're lasting a little longer. In Uzziah's case, he was a really good king. In fact, he was so good and he was so wise and he followed after God so much that it's just like his decisions and the leadership of the country, it just like, it just grew. And, and then it, it prospered. And, and the people just had more than enough. And it was just this, this season in Israel's, the southern kingdom at least, history, where like everything was firing as it should be. In fact, you could say that it even worked a little 
too well. Because Uzziah started to get a little bit big for his britches. Like, like his ego, his arrogance, it just started to fill up. It's this cautionary tale. So that by the end of his life, after he had reigned about 40-ish years or so, um, he was waiting on the priest and he decides, I'm not going to wait on the priest anymore. I'm going to go ahead and get this sacrifice thing done underway. He was a king. He wasn't a priest. The priests were supposed to do this. Rules were in place for this kind of thing. It doesn't matter exactly like what the tradition is. What I think is helpful to know that several kings in the past have gotten in trouble doing the exact same thing. You'd think he'd learned by now. It never worked out. But he thought, hey, I'm so great. What's the worst that could happen? Oh. Okay, so he goes into the temple. He grabs the incense. The priests are like, don't do it, man. And he's like, I'm going to do it. And they're like, don't do it, man. He's like, I'm going to do it. And then he does it. <laughs> Paraphrasing, of course. And then, and, then the, and then that story is told to us in Second Chronicles. The historian Josephus, a Jewish historian, he writes about this thing. And, it, and when he writes about it, he goes, no, no, you got to understand. At the moment that he lit the incense in that temple, in the, when, at the moment that he took over the job, from the priest and, and disobeyed God in that moment, the earth shook. In fact, the, the temple, it, it, it split open and a, and a, just a crack um, of, of light opened up in the roof of the temple. And then this beam came down, just this sliver, a slice, and, and just like shone on him. And as he turned around to the priests that were gathered there, they immediately saw he was struck with leprosy and the exact pattern that the light hit him. And we learned about leprosy last week, that awful skin disease, contagious, and took your social life and then your physical life after that. It's a cautionary tale. Uzziah lived for a few more years. When he was buried, they expanded the burial plot extra and just so they could put him way out there so that kings in the future and, and any passerbys who would visit the royal burial ground would know that you don't, that you, you, you don't try to take God's job from him. That even kings are subservient to the Lord God Almighty. But that's not why I mentioned this story. The point of the story is that the nation is at this crossroads. The people of God are at this crossroads. They just had a really, really good king. And I don't know where the people are, whether they're following after him or not. My suspicion is that the people we're always a bit depraved and they always tried to like buck God and the, and the rules and his leading. But I don't know. What I do know is that they're at this crossroads and they're going to decide who they're going to be. They decide, they have to decide who's they're going to be. And Isaiah is going to play a key role in discerning that. And I think it's just an interesting time to point it out because I know with the kind of church that we are, that a lot of you are in a kind of crossroads season of your life. And maybe something has happened recently uh, maybe it's something new, a new relationship, or maybe it's the breakup of an old one. Uh, maybe it's a new opportunity. It's a new geographical location, like whatever it is. But you have this opportunity in this new season, in this new place, not necessarily physical or geographical, but this new place, and you're at this crossroad, and you are going to be deciding here not only who you're going to be, but whose you're going to be. And in that moment, God turns to Isaiah and he says, I've got a job for you. Now, you got to understand, we're in Isaiah chapter 6. There's five previous chapters uh, that we didn't read because that's how math works. Isaiah 1 through 5, and we're in chapter 6. I'm just making sure we all got it. So far in the story, 
Isaiah, nobody laughed at this in the first service, but I'm going to say it again because I don't mind. Isaiah so far is a, uh, he's a woe guy, which is different than a woo girl. That's funny, right? Um, no, a woe guy, it's whatever, I don't care, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, a woe guy is a guy who's like, woe to you, you're doing it wrong. Woe to you. You're stepping off the path. Woe to you and you and you. You guys are all wrong. This is Isaiah. He's a woe guy. He's always calling stuff out in other people, and he's completely oblivious to whatever stuff he's got in, going on inside of himself. He's always looking at other people and calling out the faults in other people, and he never quite sees it in himself. This is so interesting that, that God leading him up to this place of complete and utter surrender, this place of saying, send me without qualification, hesitation, or reservation. It is a way of God bringing him into that place. God is first going to be the, doing the tough work of like holding up the mirror to Isaiah and says, no, 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 it's not just woe to everyone else. Like you've got your stuff too. Listen to what he does. Uh, Isaiah is in the presence of God. He's having this divine encounter. And then in verse five, Isaiah says, woe, say it with me, woe to me. Woe to me. Woe to me, I cried. Isaiah says, I'm ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. In the first five chapters of Isaiah, uh, his ministry so far, he's not new at becoming a prophet here, although this is a significant uh, new step in his following after God, an expanded role. But so far in the first five chapters of Isaiah, he's never once said, woe to me. He's never once recognized his own brokenness. He's never once seen his own sin. He's always called it out into other people. So if you're going to take notes this morning and you want to know these two things that God is going to do to lead you to this place of complete surrender before God, send me. I don't need to know what. The answer is always yes. The two things that God is going to provide, the first one is a genuine awareness of our own sinfulness. A genuine awareness of our own sinfulness. Uh, for Isaiah, what this looked like is he's looked back and looked around and he has always seen a generation of Israelite people in the southern kingdom. And he's always said, I'm better than you. I know more than you. I'm a better follower of God. I'm a more disciplined person than you. And honestly, I think he was probably right. Because everything that we know about what was going on in that time was a pretty awful time for following after God. Even this great, great king turned away. And so he's looking around this generation and he was saying, woe is all of you. And then God brings him of this awareness of his own sinfulness. And he's saying, you're no different. I just think that there's probably just a little bit of wisdom here for us today. Because how easy, let's be honest, how easy is it to open up a news app and to start to flip through and start to see all of the garbage that's going on in the world. And not just call it out as like, well, that's really messed up or that's really broken. But, but to look at it and, and see just human sinfulness behind it all. And how easy is it to look at all that and to say, these things, these decisions are not from God. The culture that I live in is not a godly culture. How easy is it for those of us who are trying to follow Jesus in the 21st century to look around the generation and to say, I'm better than 99% of them. 
And I think you may be right. I mean, you at least chose to come to church on a Sunday morning, so good for you. <laughs> it's so incredibly easy. And I think that's what, exactly what makes it so incredibly dangerous. Because we look around and we say, I'm a good person. Compared to who? Compared to the generation that we're surrounded by? That's what Isaiah did for the first part of his ministry. And God says, no, listen, listen. God calls him up into his presence, right? And, and Isaiah has this one-on-one -on -one encounter with God. And God says, here's the thing. I want you to stop looking around at the people around you and saying, I'm better than most of them. I want you to stop looking at the person that you go to church with and saying, I'm at least as good as the person as them. I want you to stop looking at the guy on stage and thinking I'm probably somewhere around as good of a person as he is. Stop looking at other people entirely. God gifts Isaiah this experience of his own, of God's own holiness and says, how about instead of comparing yourself to them, compare yourself to me. And Isaiah has this experience, right? He sees the very, very holiness of God. And for the first time in his ministry so far, he hits the deck, he hits his knees, and he goes, God, I am ruined. I am wrecked. Because the standard of comparison is not to other people around and their holiness and whether or not you're as good as them. No, no, no. It's compared to God and his righteousness and his holiness. There's a commentator on this, uh, on this passage, um, John something. Um, and, and he writes, he goes, for the first time, for the first time in Isaiah's ministry, something new came into his heart, humility. And humility comes before obedience. Obedience leads to righteousness. It starts with humility. I think if, there, if we're ever gonna come to God with this open-handed posture of saying, here I am, send me, without hesitation, qualification, or reservation, I'm all in, I don't even need to know what the question is. It's gonna start with, a, with our own humility. It's gonna start not from looking around and saying, send me, God, because I'm, I'm better than about 99% of the other people in my generation. No, it's gonna start with this recognition that before God, to use Isaiah's words, I am ruined. Our full surrender starts with a genuine awareness of our own sinfulness. Sinful, full of sin. We didn't sin just last week, Thursday, but Jesus died on the cross, so we're, we're, we're forgiven from that thing. Sinfulness means that there are huge chunks of our life that we live in this constant state of sinfulness. And I don't like it either, and I don't like talking about sin either, but we're going to go down this rabbit trail just one step further. Uh, and we've said this before, that the literal first commandment in the Ten Commandments that are quite popular is that you shall have no other gods before me. And if you can look back in the last 10 years of your life, and you can see in the last 10 years I was consumed with, with finding the right person, with, with building the right family, or, or starting the right career, or finishing the right academic school program or job training, if you can look back at the last 10 years of your life and say, those things, one of them was the most important thing for that season of life. And if it's anything except for pursuing the righteousness and holiness of God in Christ Jesus, you've put something else in that higher slot. If you look back and if it's not Jesus Christ and him crucified as the number one thing in your life, the entire time you're living in this constant state of not measuring up, every breath you took, every thought you had, all of it 
wasn't just sin, it was sinful, full, constant, all the time. And Isaiah's own recognition of that, standing before God and like seeing where that bar is, it wrecks him in the most beautiful way. But in the most beautiful way, God doesn't leave him there. Listen to what he does next. The next line. And then one of the seraphim, uh, that's one of the angels that was around. The angel was above the throne of God, praising him, singing, holy, holy, holy. The seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. This is going to get weirder before it gets more normal. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Now, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. This is so strange. Like the image of this angel like was singing and then goes and grabs this hot coal and touches Isaiah's lips with it and somehow it makes everything better. It's weird and it's okay in church just to acknowledge like what in the world was that? That's what the little notes at the bottom of your Bible is for, to be honest. If something doesn't, we have a, we have a way of saying around here, if something doesn't make sense on its initial read, hang in there because there was probably something that did make sense to someone somewhere back then. There was meaning behind it someplace. Otherwise, they wouldn't have held on to it throughout so many thousands of years. In this case, the whole live coal deal came from the Day of Atonement, which is a pretty important day in, in the nation of Israel, in their history. It was the day that all the people, as many who could, gathered before a God in the, in the Jerusalem, in the temple, and everybody kind of squished in there, and they had this large-scale animal sacrifice. Everybody brought some kind of an animal, whatever they could afford, and they would offer it as a sacrifice to God. Now, this is a brutal and grotesque demonstration. You think about not just thousands or tens, but, but possibly hundreds of thousands of sacrifices taking place in this week-long event. I mean, the level of, of animal death and slaughter from this event, the, the valley below the temple ran a dark crimson red from the sacrifices that were taking place. It is not the case that Christians today believe that somehow an animal's death absolved the wrong and the guilt that we did. It is, however, the case that God was drilling into humanity in this very primitive time in our human redemptive history. God was drilling into our consciousness this fact that wrongdoing, that sin, has a cost to be paid. And they could just look over the edge and see the crimson red valley below and realize my sin has a price to pay. Now I want to come back to that because what's important in this part is that there would be a part of the ceremony on that day of atonement where the high priest would go out to the altar where all these sacrifices are taking place, grab a tongs and, and scoop up some of these live coals and bring it into the most holy place where only the high priest was allowed, where he'd sacrifice and light up the, and light up the sacrifice for that representative sacrifice for everybody. And so this is something that Isaiah was just kind of like used to seeing. And so when the angel swoops down with this live coal from the throne room of God in this most holy place, like he gets it. He understands what's happening. He's saying, my sin is being carried away. My guilt is being absolved. Uh, Back to that sacrificial system. We look at that and saying God is drilling into our minds. Our sin has a cost to be paid. 
But Christ Jesus paid for that price once and for all on the cross. We don't need to slaughter animals. We don't need to, we do need to be reminded of the sheer guilt that we have to be assured of the amazing grace that God won. God is bringing Isaiah to this place of complete surrender. This open-handed God, send me without qualification, hesitation, reservation. The answer is yes. I don't even need to know what the question is. In order to, for God to lead Isaiah to that place where he can finally do that, he's given him two things. The first thing was an awareness of his own sinfulness. The second thing, as we saw right here, is an experience of God's own gracefulness. Now, I know that I'm not totally using that word correctly, but I wanted it to match. Sinfulness, gracefulness. You get it. An awareness of his own sinfulness, an experience of his own gracefulness. Some of you have had one without the other. And I think it's catastrophic in what it does to a life of a Christian. I think if you experience grace without an awareness of sin, I think you've missed something. I think you've missed the deep heart of God. I think that if you experience, it's very likely, sin and the, and the massive awareness of your own shortcoming and sinfulness before God, and you haven't had that experience of grace, you're just going to be beating yourself up again and again and again. And you'll just be finding yourself pushed down deeper and deeper into this hole of guilt and shame and fear. And you'll never want to come out. And so if that's you on either side, if you haven't experienced one or the other, I, just, I want to invite you to pray. Uh, we have people in the back in the prayer area. And, and as the song begins in just a minute here, head back there. And to just simply say, I need to, ex I need to be aware of my sin or go back there and just simply ask, pray, God, gift me with an experience of your grace. I need both. And when that happens and you get an awareness of your, of your sin and an experience of God's grace, <laughs> he's got something for you. Verse 8, then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, here, I, here am I, send me. Send me without hesitation, reservation, or qualification. Send me. I don't even need to know where. The answer is yes. Now listen, Isaiah did not have an easy job. He had no idea what he was going to be led into. But the nation would just continue this spiral, slow spiral downward. And eventually a king got on the throne. And his message to the people was so hard and so difficult. It was a message simply that they rejected God again and again. And God was aware. And God would call him out. And God wouldn't leave him there. And eventually, the king got so tired of hearing the truth being taught to him that he had Isaiah killed. Even sawed in half. Manasseh was his name. And that's how Isaiah's life ended, as a martyr. But the thing is, after being aware of his own sin, after experiencing God's grace again and again, I don't think that Isaiah ever looked back. I think he lived with this posture of saying, God, yes. Now, what's the question? So what about you? Where is God going to send you? What are you going to say when God asks? 
For some of you, I think it's entirely possible that God is going to be sending you after today, start nudging your heart, maybe audible, maybe not, but saying, go. Go to, go to pre-Christian China and bring the word of God there. Bring this message of grace there. They need to hear it. Go. Go to post-Christian Europe. They need to hear this message of grace too. I think it's entirely possible. We've got a family here that just got back from the Philippines. You can ask one of them, Dan, if he ever thought he would end up doing ministry halfway around the world. I don't think he did up until recently. God surprises us with the different ways he says, go. But for most of you, I don't think he's sending you to pre-Christian China or post-Christian Europe or the Philippines. I think for the vast majority, you know where he's sending you? Lunch this afternoon. You know where he's going to send you after that? Your kid's soccer game. And after that, he's going to send you to the job site or to the office, the place where you work. He's going to keep sending you down into these conversations, maybe that you've already had, have going on. And he's going to keep asking you to go into those places and to bring light into those places and to bring hope and joy into those places, to bring Jesus into those places, to bring this experience that Isaiah had of heaven and bring it into those places. He's asking you to do those things. What's your response going to be? Later? Not yet? Terms and conditions apply? If you pray for God, to give you this experience, this awareness of your sin and this experience of his grace, I think you will have no other choice in your extreme, overwhelming joy to say, God, here I am, send me. I have no reservation, no hesitation, no qualifications, just send me. Dear friends, we call these things dangerous prayers. Search me, break me, send me. But truly, <laughs> these prayers are after the heart of God. Take it from Isaiah, somebody who was martyred and didn't look back. There is no safer place to be than within the deep heart of God. The most dangerous way you could possibly live your life is to turn back at God when he's nudging and he's asking and to say, send someone else or not now or terms and conditions apply. That's dangerous. In the scheme of eternity, your whole life, everything, that's the most dangerous way. That's the way you're going to miss out on most in this life that he has offered by simply saying no to God, saying yes to God. He's also saying yes to the victory that Jesus has won for you. Saying yes to God is saying yes to this incredible world-changing mission that he has for you. Saying yes to God is being a part of something so dramatically more than anything that this world could ever possibly offer you. Say yes to God today. Send me without hesitation, without qualification, without reservation. The answer is yes. God, what's the question? Would you stand with me and let's pray? God, we want to say yes. God, whatever this nudge is, a nudge to go, a nudge to stay, a nudge to start new, a nudge to end the old. God, we want to be able to say yes. To get us to that place of complete open-handed surrender God, we know that 
you're gonna have to break us anew. God, that scares us, and it should, because you're gonna make us starkly aware of our own sinfulness. But God, we ask in all humility to give us an experience of your grace. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.